If you could go back to the start of your career, the day before day one, where you were still weighing up the pros and cons of working for a particular company, what would you place on the list of must have perks? Flexible hours, health insurance, lunch on site? Well, the first thing I'd look at is the pay. Well, actually, the stuff that I used to look at was working from home hours, online hours, but I guess that's everything nowadays. So I guess that's covered in most jobs. So because I'm already in management, I'd look to see if I could progress more. I'd look to see if it's like good rates of pay, if it's competitive, what entitlements I'd get, like holidays and sick pay. I suppose I don't really look for any perks, to be honest, because for the most part, I just kind of want to work. So I kind of will take what I get and if there's any kind of perks that come with that, well then great. And if not, well, I never really expected anything in the first place. So kind of like I didn't lose anything anyway. If I get a, if I get a positive vibe from the people that I'm going to be working for and working with, that for me makes all the difference in terms of wanting to show up every day. I, I really think everything else is, is, is definitely secondary to that. The nature of perks and indeed company culture has changed dramatically over the past 20 years and much of it is as a result of tech companies basing themselves here in Ireland. Over the next hour here on News Talk, we'll hear from a HR expert about what matters most today and we'll hear how charity and voluntary work benefits the company, the workers and the cause. Embedded Tech and Town, thanks to Salesforce. Celebrating 20 years helping Irish businesses, people and communities grow. This is News Talk. Many of the big American tech companies that have based themselves here in Ireland have influenced and shaped our human resource practices. I'm joined on the line now by Caroline McHenry of the HR Suite to talk through what matters most to employees today. So Caroline, over the last few weeks on this show, we've looked back at the impact technology has made on Ireland over the last 20 years. Um, And a lot of these big tech companies, very often they're American corporations and they bring with that uh, a lot of their company cultures and so on. Have we seen a big improvement in terms of HR standards as a result of that? Without doubt, Jess, I think they've really encouraged us to think differently in relation to areas like employee retention, company culture, organisational and work design, uh, innovation um, and that whole space around well-being and what the work space should feel and look like as well. So there's been lots of areas they've influenced and it's meant that other organisations have had to up their game to ensure they're attracting and retaining that talent in the same way. The the notion of well-being is interesting because, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago, that wasn't a term that we heard that often. And yet now a lot of companies in like have well-being uh, codes of standard and codes of practice and they have well-being weeks and so on. Do you think that that is something that we here in Ireland, you know, our traditional companies would have embraced as quickly were it not for the big American corporations? I think we've got lots of inspiration, uh, guidance, ideas from them um, and from other, I suppose, influences also. But Mm -hmm. they've definitely brought a lot of new ways of thinking. And what I think they've done as well is they've spotlighted the fact that this is something that's really necessary within the organisation. And I suppose a lot of the people who work in these tech companies probably work long hours and work-life balance was a real challenge for them because a lot of people were having their lunch in the campus. They were socializing in the campus. You know, it was nearly becoming kind of, you know, the whole life piece was getting really blended. 
And we're now seeing the need to kind of peel that back a bit. So there's definitely a lot of learnings, both in terms of what we need to do and also what we need to monitor and be careful of. But if you think back to some of the industries that were incredibly popular here in Ireland, you know, 40, 50 years ago, a lot of factory work, a lot of farming, obviously enough, a lot of like shift work with bread, um, you know, uh, bakers and butchers and all the rest. And yet they didn't have those HR practices and those well-being initiatives. Why do you think it's so uh, sort of synonymous with the tech sector? I think that uh, we know that people, if they're sedentary, like a lot of the jobs you mentioned there, people are moving. Um, A lot of the tech jobs, people are very, very sedentary. We know that we need people to be moving around, taking their breaks. Uh, So even though there's lots of legislation around the Organisation Working Time Act and break entitlements, etc., again, they wouldn't be probably, um, you know, they'd be stuck in to get the job done and, you know, are really focused on the job. So again, Things like encouraging them to take the breaks and the healthy eating, you know, all that, I suppose, is really good for their concentration and their engagement. And I think overall, these companies see the link to productivity, the link to well-being and the link to retention and attraction. And because they're seeing the link, it, it helps them their bottom line. It helps their, you know, people who are for tech companies, the most important asset, you know, because All of this is innovation and it's people driven. So I think they really see, okay, we need to invest in this so we get that return on investment back. With some of the tech companies over the years, um, you'd hear that they'd have fantastic facilities on site and they'd have, you know, very often when I walk in, you'd see like a ping pong table and you'd see multiple beer fridges and you'd see a fantastic canteen. As we started to embrace these tech companies, was that a big draw for potential employees? Like, do do we get, are we that bamboozled by the sight of a free beer that we think, God, that's a company that I'd want to work for? I think um, the younger graduates want to work for the Googles and the Facebooks and a lot of these innovative new companies because they're exactly that. They're innovative, they're leading edge and all of the, I suppose, trimmings that we mentioned there are probably the kind of icing on the cake to kind of go, well, look, it's not really cool. I'm going to get my, my meals and they're going to be color coded so I know how healthy I'm being. I'm going to get free gym membership, you know. And when you're a graduate and you're starting out, all those, you know, free elements that complement their lifestyle are probably very attractive. I think as people progress in their career, Things like work-life balance, things like remote working, all those things become more important. And then the, the perks that might be, you know, more of interest early on, things like share option schemes and health insurance, etc., are much more important. So I think, you know, the, the career trajectory of somebody influences what's most important. But a lot of these tech companies are hitting the note on all of those different milestones of that person's career journey. So they're being very clever on how they attract and how they retain, you know, talent at all levels within the organisation. One thing that I'm really interested in this space, um, and particularly as we look to the big, big corporations, you know, people who have thousands of employees here in Ireland alone, never mind around the world, is how they create a sense of purpose and identity for that individual employee within a huge big corporation 
Are there any companies who have done it very well to ensure that they're not just an employee number on the payroll, that they do have a sense of purpose and identity? Like I know here in News Talk, we're a small enough company. I know everyone. I know what my function is. I know that I play a part beyond just my job description. So how do the bigger corporations do that? I think one of the really clever things that they do is they give people um, a time allocation in their week to spend on projects or innovation um, that they're passionate about. So they're really recognizing your individual strengths that you can bring to the overall strategy, to the innovation space, etc. And I think that means that you really feel they've done things like hackathons. You know, they really are trying to play to your individual contribution and how that impacts the overall focus of the organization. They're also really good at ensuring that not just Google, but all these organizations at ensuring, you know, the role you play in that overall organization, like the example you've given there in your own organization. They cascade that down to everybody and they make sure that culture gets a lot of airtime and particularly communication gets a lot of airtime. And, you know, like communication, we're, you know, especially in the turbulent times we've had in the last number of months, like we always say, over-communicate. It's one of the things that when you do an employee survey, nearly always comes up in the, in the first three that people say we'd like more communication, even in these organizations. And they do so much communication and they do it so well. People want more. So doing the individual one-to-ones, doing the, you know, the stand-ups, doing the team briefings, doing the department updates, doing the overall organizational updates, all those communication forums help that person understand what is my role and how does that contribute to the overall picture and also gives them advice to really be passionate and, you know, hero areas that they're specifically interested in themselves. And not many organizations have that space for innovation in their companies, but we see how well it pays off in the companies that do. Some of the tech companies that I've been lucky enough to kind of tour around or, you know, if I have meetings or whatever, I go into them. And one thing I'm always struck by is the cultural diversity within these companies. Like if you walk the floor of, say, Vodafone or Salesforce or even Facebook, for example, you'll hear multiple languages being spoken at the one time. There, there is a great sense of diversity there. Do you think that they have sort of set the standard in terms of that cultural integration within companies, therefore within cities and within countries? Um, I suppose I started my career many moons ago in a company called Kerry Group. And back then we were talking about diversity um, charters and the importance of promoting diversity throughout the organisation, which was a relatively small organisation in comparison to what it is now. And I think we've seen that organizations that embed that in its, you know, priorities have seen how that different thinking, that different contribution, that diversity in every sense brings huge value. And I think we've really, I suppose, heroed that in the last number of years. And in organizations now, that's something that's celebrated at least once a year in a, in a big you know, kind of celebration of diversity, but also it's something that people are actively trying to encourage in their recruitment, in their promotion, in their training, in their, you know, interactions of how we do. Now, it also brings challenges because with different cultures, you also bring different challenges, but that brings way more positivity than anything else. And by challenges, I mean understanding the cultural differences. 
So it encourages all the people within the organization to start learning more about those cultures and those differences so that it, it makes them something that we celebrate and see as really positive rather than challenges that people have to overcome. A lot of the policies that have been developed, and I know that, you know, like I've interviewed Anne O'Leary of Vodafone quite a few times now, and they go out of their way to ensure that they are implementing different policies, not because it's the cool thing to do or not because of the kudos, but because you know, it's scenarios that are real. So I know that they have leave if somebody is in, say, a, a domestic violence situation. Um, and, and that is something that, you know, 20 years ago, you know, we wouldn't have had in this country. Do you think that that is something that other companies need to embrace? And do you think that every company can get to a point where, you know, it's it's kind of uniform across the board rather than if you work in one place, you'll have better protections and rights than if you work in another? Yeah, I think we've really come a long way and Ireland in particular is on that journey. There's increases in family leave every year. There's, you know, opportunity for companies to identify themselves as, you know, a key player in wanting to retain and attract staff by doing the right thing in all of these examples and areas. I think during COVID, we've also seen smaller companies, you know, who mightn't have the um, you know the huge resources really step up to the plate where they've said, yeah, no, we want to do the right thing too. And they've started to adopt and hero those policies as well because they've really seen that people will really remember how they've been treated by their employer and that feeling of trust and safety and being looked after has been something that people really have spoken hugely about during COVID, you know. So I think those companies have been leading the way in that regard. And I think, you know, we're going to see a lot more of it. I think, you know, we always say that the legislation is the starting point. And then the the things you do more outside of that are what makes you stand out. For some organisations, they do more than others. For others, they promote it better also. I think, you know, what the employee feedback now you know, is, and we, because of social media, that's so widely available. Most people will know somebody in the organisation to say, look, I'm thinking of coming and working there. What do you think? And they'll be very honest in saying, listen, when my father died, they were just amazing. The way they treated me was exceptional. And people, there are standout moments in people's career and life that they'll be saying, you know, that was just, the way I was treated was above and beyond. And I think that empathy and that, I suppose, meeting that person's needs in times like that are hugely important now, particularly more than ever when, you know, people really want and value that feeling of, you know, psychological safety, which is something we take for granted, I think, Mm -hmm. until it becomes challenged. We're hearing um, about younger, like recent graduates and the, the younger workers, that they're less interested in doing manual, slightly thankless labour. They want a job with purpose and they want to feel part of something bigger than themselves, which is a lovely sentiment, but it's not always possible. Uh, how do employers going go about ensuring that, you know, their workers are fulfilled and will it, will we get to a stage where you'll have to say ah oh, look cop on this job needs to be filled you need a job therefore get on with it i think you know every individual has a different skill set and a different you know uh, aptitude and you know different people will you know be more successful or not 
in different types of jobs. For example, those that require dexterity, those that require analytical skills, you know, data analytics, etc. And I think it's important. I always believe that from a career guidance point of view, more should be spent in terms of time, effort, resources in actually identifying that person's individual strengths and personality traits, etc., to try and match them to a career that meets those skills and competencies more closely rather than just looking at how many points do they get and what courses can they get based on the points. I think then we've got to see, like, for example, we've hugely successful people in the arts, uh, culture, you know, in the whole fashion industry, etc. And that's really creative. You know, it's, it's, you know, one side of the spectrum. And then we see hugely successful people who work in tech or who work in manufacturing, etc., most of the time, these individuals are not interchangeable. Mm-hmm. That's their skill set. And when it all goes pear-shaped, it's when we put a round peg into a square hole and that person really struggles in that job because their natural skill set doesn't suit it. So I think maybe the jobs, I think we'll, we know that jobs are changing and a lot of the jobs we have now will not be needed in the future. But I think people's skills need to be matched to the new jobs and whatever they may be in line with those skills. Mm. We heard on our first show from um, local TD Neil Richmond in the Sandyford area how in Sandyford Business District the the average salary is €85,000 because they have a lot of tech companies in that area. What what I suppose what what issues arise when you do have those pockets where the salaries are much higher for, for certain career sectors you know does that place a lesser value on some of the, the other sectors even though that the jobs are as vital to keep society going yeah I think it'll come back to people's skill set again just I think that you know you've certain people who will aspire for that salary to go with that job and are happy to make maybe the sacrifices to go with that as well so whatever that might be they might have gone on and do, done a master's you know they might have a specific you know, programming skill or whatever that might be. But for others, they might value more flexibility in terms of time for more they want maybe to live closer to the beach and the sea and they're happy to sacrifice salary because the cost of living is going to be less. I think salary on its own isn't an ideal measure because a lot of the time with the salary goes the cost of living, goes the hours, goes the demands of the job, etc. And that's for some people, but not for all. So overall, do you think that the arrival of big tech to town has had a positive impact on the HR standards right across Ireland? Because these tech companies aren't just based in Dublin, they're right around the country. Without doubt, I think they've only brought positive things. You know, we've got brilliant new courses being developed in our colleges and our institutions as a result. We've got people who can stay in Ireland and do leading innovative jobs for, you know, leading edge companies that, you know, are absolutely amazing that they might have to travel for alternatively. And I think also it's broadened our thinking in relation to everything from how do we embrace culture? How do we do one-to-ones? How do we recruit? How do we retain? How do we attract? Um, And I think, you know, that whole broadening of thinking um, has facilitated us all to say, right, let's cherry pick the best bits. And let's try and see how we can integrate those into all companies to give them the best chance of doing the best HR strategy that they can. So I think they've brought nothing but good, Jess. And the challenges they've brought, I think, are up far 
are outweighed by the benefits than anything else. With the arrival of COVID, we know that a lot more people will be working remotely. How is that going to change HR? Because you're not going to have the usual quibbles of someone nicked a pen from my desk. You know, those smaller issues will no longer be there. But do you think other challenges will arise from people working from home? They have already, Jess. I think we have a number of different new challenges, one being the bit of social isolation that people are experiencing. And that, I suppose, is something that they're feeling that they're missing the social element of work and especially if it's somebody who's in a place that they don't already have a community built up so for example if they're from abroad or they're you know they're here uh, and it's their first job etc depending on where they're located I think the other challenges are the fact it's so sedentary whereas people will say god if I was in the office I'd be getting next many steps because I'd be walking around, I'd be going to different meetings, etc. And I think outside of that, then, even though we mightn't have the, you know, the interactions in relation to, you know, um, the smaller grievances that might occur when people are next to each other, new grievances are arising. People, you know, when they'd normally have the chat and the meeting to discuss it, people are using email a lot more. So you're not getting as much collaboration or, you know, you're not getting the same tone or nuance because people are doing a really quick email. You know, they're not putting in the hi, Caroline, I'm just checking, do you mind? Thanks very much. So I think we have to work harder at building relationships and fostering relationships because that is how we get things done. People will say, listen, Jess, any chance you'd, you know, stay on this evening and get this report done or any chance you'd oblige me by coming in early tomorrow morning. That's built on the bank that you have all those pluses of positivity with that person, which is harder to do now that they're working remotely. Mm -hmm. So we need to work hard at that, I think. So definitely remote working for managers has also been more challenging in terms of maybe if the work isn't being done and the person is saying, well, look, I feel I'm not able to concentrate as well as I could when I was in the office, etc. So there's definitely a lot of new challenges Um, as a result of remote working, but massive benefits as well, you know. So, you know, without doubt, remote working is probably one of the best things that's happened, you know, in this whole crisis uh, with COVID. Where does the line uh, or where is the line for employers? Because if you're someone who's now working from home and you are sort of computer based, so you're not moving as much, maybe you're not seeing as many people, maybe you're having a drink every evening, maybe, you know, your overall well-being, not just professional, but like your overall well-being has come to a bit of a slump. Does the employer have a responsibility there to try and help in some way? And what could they do? I think productivity for employers is a hugely important focus, always has been. And I think now the employee well-being piece, especially that they're not, you know, in the office as much or you don't see them as much for, for work environments in that regard. I think it's never been more important to start to do the one-to-ones, to do the check-ins, to identify what are the challenges people are having, to, you know, make sure that you're still doing the open door policy chat, you know, because now it's all work related rather than, look, I'm just checking in to see how are things going? How are you finding remote working? Anything we could do different. And also that well-being piece then in terms of, are you struggling with anything? And if you do notice somebody late, somebody not looking great on the Zoom call and you're concerned that there might be something more to this, 
it's really important that you do do the side call afterwards to say, look, Caroline, I'm just concerned and this is why. Because if we don't name it, it's not going to get better. And I think, you know, more than ever now, it's a brilliant question because I think we're all so busy and adjusting to this new normal that a lot of stuff can, you know, slide. And it's because it's by the time it's spotted, it's a huge problem. Whereas if somebody was in an office, it'd be nipped in the bud a lot sooner. Mm. And finally, then, from your own side, you know, how has technology enabled you to do your work? Because I know that you're you're based in Kerry, isn't that correct? I share my time between Kerry and Dublin. Um, and like we have an office in Kerry, we have an office in Dublin and we have remote workers then scattered throughout the country. So for us, it's been brilliant. First of all, that we can do remote working so well. I mean, it's just fantastic. We do anything from WebEx to Zoom to Microsoft Teams to, you know, the, the length and breadth of them. We've also been doing a huge amount of webinars, which is really good for information giving sessions. And they've been really popular and, you know, really helpful to give people, I suppose, that support in relation to whatever topic that they need that support for. And then I suppose we're doing a lot more training. I mean, we would have been, me in particular, I'd have traveled so much to client premises and, you know, we'd be actively meeting people to do training, etc. And even though I miss the human connection and try and go out of my way to get as much of it as I can within the guidelines, in terms of, you know, meeting the client, you know, et cetera, the definitely, you know, being able to do Zoom training, for example, and still do very effective training by all these like breakout sessions and meeting rooms, et cetera. Technology has evolved so much from that perspective that you can really maximize your time better. And without doubt, I feel I'm definitely a lot more productive, you know, as a result of that, because my downtime is less. So even though I might have been doing calls when I was traveling, the downtime is a lot less. So I think, you know, without doubt, the blended approach of some remote and some, you know, in the office is where we'd love to land. And I think most people would concur with that once it's safe to be in work, um, that, you know, they still have the social interaction and still have all the productivity benefits of being able to work from home once they have the right setup at home. For some people, that's not the case. But those that have, I think the ideal scenario is that we land at a blended layer, blended, you know, place that people have a bit of both and the best of both. Caroline McEnery, you're a fountain of knowledge uh, of the HR suite. Thank you so much for your time as always. Thanks, Jess. Coming up next, we'll hear how working with charities benefits the business and boosts employee morale. Embedded Tech and Town on News Talk. Thanks to Salesforce, celebrating 20 years helping Irish businesses, people, and communities grow. You're very welcome back. Don't forget you can listen to every episode of this series up on Newstalk.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search Embedded Tech in Town with Jess Kelly. Now we've heard about the perks that matter to employees, but what about volunteering and contributing to charity? I'm joined on the line now by Marianne Checkley, CEO of Kamara Education Ireland, to talk about how the charities benefit from this tech support. Uh, Marianne, you're very welcome to the show. You might, you might just start by giving us um, a quick reminder as to what exactly it is that uh, Kamara Education does. Sure. So we're a registered charity, not for profit. And I think sometimes it's in, in explaining the work that we do, it's often easier to lead with the problem that we're trying to solve. 
So really our work is based on the belief that education is a big set of keys that unlocks opportunity. Now, unfortunately, as, as we know, there's an achievement gap and it's highlighted every year around leading cert results time. So if you're Johnny or Mary from a certain school, town or postcode, you're, you're more or less likely maybe to get high academic results. And there's a range of factors involved, uh, but a core factor is how well, you're, how well resourced your school is. Uh, and in today's world, technology is a very very important aspect of that resourcing. Um, so as well as the achievement gap, there's, there's an aspiration gap. Uh, jobs and careers exist now that weren't even on the radar 20 years ago. Creative digital media, technology software development, a whole range of, of, of opportunities. So we want to spark interest for all young people, show them what's possible for their talents and their energy, uh, especially for those who might have no reference point in their family and their community to, to the range of prospects available. And we want to capacity build, we want to build resources in schools and for teachers and youth work workers so that they have the skills, knowledge and confidence to be able to, to use technology effectively to to make learning engaging, uh, enhance it, uh, to get really good results for their students and to be able to integrate it into their programs on an, on an ongoing basis. It's interesting because, you know, when I was in school, for example, like I'm 31 now, so when I was in school, having a computer room in our secondary school was, it was a pure novelty thing and we did bits and pieces of training but our education didn't really hang on it. And if you look at where Ireland is today in 2020 and the importance of digital literacy, um, you know, the ability to touch type, all of these little things, they do make or break your ability and your aptitude for certain careers down the line. And it's also a fundamental communication tool now as well, the ability to engage with digital technologies in a comprehensive way, but also in a responsible way and to ga gain your wits about you, I suppose, in the online space. But there is a huge disparity between, as you just said there, you know, the places that have it and the places that don't have it. And it's not even just, you know, having a PC. It's it's the quality of the, the technology that some places have, whilst others are still, you know, only dreaming about having um, the access that some of those other schools do. So what what are the what are the challenges in terms of practicality that you try to overcome and how do you go about tackling them? Yeah, for sure. Like I, I, you, you've touched on a, a few really important points there. Like it's, it's very layered, isn't it? You know, so one thing is making sure that the equipment in the school is high quality, uh, has good access. There's good broadband, high speed broadband in the school. Uh, so just for that, the pure practical aspect of gaining access to 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 what tech can do. Uh, so that's one layer. So it's making sure that that schools and youth centres, all learning settings, are really resourced with that high quality equipment. The other layer then is being able to to really make the most of it. So screen time is one thing, but technology means an awful lot more than that. So for for educators, for teachers and youth workers to be able to be confident in integrating 
technology into their teaching and and learning practice in the classroom, uh, they need professional development. They need support to be able to do that. You know, so for the geography teacher who's looking at a sea and a range of apps that are out there, how do they make decisions in terms of what's the best one for them when they're trying to deliver their lessons and how can it solve a problem for them and make it more engaging in the classroom? How can they do projects? get their students to communicate, uh, be collaborative. Um, so it, it's it's very layered. And we would see that those layers are very apparent to us in terms of where schools are at in their, let's call it like their digital journey. You know, so some schools are still looking to really, okay, let's, we need to get uh, laptops and desktops into the school. Uh, some are grappling with broadband. Some are trying to get their email accounts or learning platforms set up in the school. And then others are further along the journey in terms of, you know, they might be looking more at uh, how they assess work or or how they integrate it uh, on a more ad- an advanced way. So it's, it's very layered. Uh, but ultimately, what we try and do is to... Um, have that conversation with the schools. So meet teachers where they're at uh, and also in the community, see where the where the gaps are and see what's important for them. And we think that's a really important aspect to our approach. So we're not swooping in to say, this is what you need to do and this is what you need to have. We're saying, where are you at now? Uh, what are the gaps for you? And, and how can we provide the technology or the professional development that solves those problems? I'm sure uh, one or two people listening to this now may roll their eyes and say, Asher, look, we didn't have computers when I was in school and I turned out just fine. But if you're the parent of a child, for example, who has dyslexia or dyspraxia or some form of learning difficulty, uh, you could see and understand, you'd have a greater appreciation, I suppose, for how technology can enable and empower your child in the classroom beyond uh, just digital literacy. It's just the day-to-day learning can be made easier with this. So there are, there's, I suppose, a spectrum of, of benefits to this. So where once you guys have engaged in, in the conversations with the schools and you assess the needs and so on, what is the solution? Is it all just, you know, getting devices and getting them into the hands of kids? Or is it more about the education of how to engage with them in a way that is beneficial? Uh, it's very much the latter. It's how to engage uh, the kids in in a way that provides them with the best education possible. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, I mean, I think education is probably one of the, the, the few sectors left where we still often look to a touch point of 40, 50 years ago and say, you know, what worked then should work now, you know, uh, when things have moved so far. So really uh, everything that that's done uh, in education needs to happen with the best learning outcomes in mind. So technology doesn't lead the teaching and learning. It doesn't lead what the teacher does. What they find is best for their students leads what the teacher does. And if it's, like, for example, for, for some of those instances you've mentioned, if technology allows them to address a need in their classroom in a better way, uh, that, that allows them to uh, provide a more effective and 
quality education. Um, we know uh, from research, from evidence, that good teaching and learning is uh, collaborative. You know, it's around communication. It's about, around creativity. Uh, chalk and talk, as it's referred to often in, edu in education circles, like the old old style model of the teacher at the top of the classroom, it doesn't have to be like that anymore. Uh, and technology can facilitate all those really, really important aspects of, of education that allow students and kids to learn better, to make learning happen, to make learning happen in a better way, and ultimately to uh, achieve better results. We are talking about the impact that technology has made in Ireland over the last 20 years. Has the arrival of some of the big tech companies to Ireland helped in any way, shape or form with what you're trying to achieve? Because I have been out with some of the tech companies over the years who will tell me about how you know they give their staff X amount of days of the year to go and work with charity partners and they can engage with the community in different ways. Is that something that you guys have benefited from? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think I think there's a couple of benefits there as well, and I'll I'll come to one because I think the aspiration gap is a large part of the the big tech presence in Ireland as well right now. But in terms of practical, tangible support for us, uh, we've had uh, a long, ongoing relationship now with with Salesforce, uh, who provided volunteering to our our wider organization that's Kamara Education that works in sub-Saharan Africa also uh, and that support has ranged from volunteering to go and pack up a container of of desktop computers to send off to Ethiopia where their staff would go out and, and volunteer for a day to do that to developing uh, our systems, our processes around platforms. So capacity building for us as an organization as well. Uh, so there's a range of supports. And, and more recently uh, in Ireland, uh, funding to provide um, deep, a deep impact project to 25 schools in terms of integrating digital technology into into their into their classrooms. So there's a range of range of benefits uh, that we've had, particularly with that relationship with with Salesforce, and also from Google. Google have been very supportive of our work as well uh, for the last number of years, both in schools and and in the youth sector. So. Um, I would say that the big tech are are so open to conversations and and also to partnerships. So, not just about funding, although the funding is also always, of course, you know, very welcome. Uh, but that real sense of partnership, where we develop relationships, I think, with each other. You know, so there'd be a number of people in Salesforce, for example, that I could email on any one day and just say, look, you might have a you might have a solution to this issue we're coming up against. Or, um, and that that actually became particularly evident uh, this year in a, a COVID response. We were part of a Tech to Students project with Trinity Access Programme where we were looking for the public and companies to donate laptops for Leaving Cert students and uh, to get them out really, really quickly so they could stay online and stay connected. Um, and uh, Salesforce, I was chatting with them and our 
Ross in, in Salesforce went around and, and gathered up a pile of laptops there and, and sent them on to us. So it, it ranges. Like, I mean, it is a, a definite sense of, of partnership and, and support that we have there. Um, it's usually, usually valuable for us to be able to uh, deliver what we do, deliver our programs. Um, but also, I think, just touching on that aspiration piece, uh, that I mentioned and the presence of big tech here in Ireland, you know, that there's, there are careers, um, there's learning pathways now that, that didn't exist 20 years ago. And there's so many communities and young people that have no reference points to those careers, you know, so we had the traditional kind of professions, elite professions, let's say of, you know, medicine, uh, law, uh, whatever it is. Uh, but now, you know, what's emerging as well is kind of technology is starting to become part of their part of that set, you know, because there is that aspiration gap. If young people who just wouldn't have a clue of what's available, of, of where they could channel, channel their their skills and, and their energy. Um, and that's the presence of big tech in Ireland, I think, is closing that. It provides a reference point, but it's up to us and our work as well in Kamara Ireland. Part of that is connecting the the skills uh, and the opportunity of what what's there in big big tech with with a lot of kids and a lot of communities around the country to be able to say, okay, look, you know, have a go at this. Uh, build an app you know mm. here's the, here's some basic coding build an app uh, uh, enjoy it have a bit of fun and and see and did you know that this is the kind of stuff that goes on in Salesforce or in Google or or wherever you know yeah um, so it's, it's kind of making those connections as well I think is really really important yeah one of the things one of the many projects that um, you guys are very heavily involved in manage promote and talk about it quite often is the tech space program and last year I was lucky enough to be down at the ESB creative tech fest and I that was one of the best days I had last year I go to some very cool events and I go all over the world but we were down I think it was in the convention center last year. And what really struck me at that event, which was kind of like an award ceremony for some of the kids who had taken part throughout the year, was seeing and getting a full understanding of how technology is not just about science, technology, engineering and maths anymore. It's moved from STEM to STEAM, which brings in the arts and the artistic element. And I think that is very beneficial for young people to understand that you don't just have to be a coder to get a job in technology. A lot of um, the work that I've done in the last year, for example, has been looking at how technology is used and implemented. And for it to be implemented effectively, you need many different types of brains around the table. Artificial intelligence is fantastic at doing one thing. But if you have someone who is a poet or who is, you know, a a, a visual artist, they can talk and and bring things to the table that someone who can just write code perhaps can't. Is that something that you are conscious at, you know, um, infiltrating into the children from a very young age that you don't just have to be one type of person to work in technology? Completely. Uh, it's it's so important to get that message across, you know, and I, I think as technology has moved, you know, it moves so quickly, you know, it's 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 a very fast moving uh 
area and industry. And I think we all have some hangovers from what our preconceptions might be of who works in technology and what they do. And they've changed immensely. But uh, but often, unless you're in that world, you, you have no clue about what that could mean, you know. So we try and bring that creativity and bring that creativity out of young people uh, by experimenting with with technology. Um, and again, not just about kind of on screens, but also around, you know, building uh, sustainable wind powered small cars, you know, and, and racing them and all of the design that goes into that uh, and all of the other pieces that go into it as well in terms of engineering and uh, even some physics in that too. So like it's, it's very broad. And I think to that point as well, I think what I think is, is, important to note too just from a wider perspective that absolutely it's about unlocking individual potential but if we also think of it, think of it in, in a sense of a, a wider community or a wider society like do we uh, as a public want all of the technology that's being designed and delivered to come from to be designed and delivered by a very narrow range of uh, thought uh, and of of people who are working on it, or do we want you know the technology that's designed that we use every day to come from a very diverse, very creative, uh, very open and energetic pool of people? Uh, and I, I, my preference would be for the latter, you know. And I think that diversity, there's a huge richness in it. So we want to, you know, we recognise that there's a huge energy of young people out there with a with a very wide range of experience skills talents and creativity and we want to make sure that they bring all of that into the sector or you know have the opportunity to bring it into the sector we're not either saying that this is what they have to do but certainly the opportunity should be there for them to do that and i think everybody would be the richer for it Absolutely. Uh, the organisation is called Kamara Ireland. You can find much more information up on their website. Uh, Marianne Checkley, the CEO of Kamara Ireland, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And that is all we have time for this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full up on Newstalk.com. But don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Pocket Casts or wherever you get your podcasts from. My thanks to researcher Sonia Tutti from me, Jess Kelly. Until next week, take care. Embedded Tech and Town on News Talk. Thanks to Salesforce. Celebrating 20 years helping Irish businesses, people, and communities grow.